evening and welcome. My name is Charles Stang. I'm the director here at the Center for the Study of World Religions. And on behalf of the staff and the residents, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the annual Greeley Lecture for Peace and Social Justice. And it's my great honor this evening to introduce this year's Greeley Lecturer, the Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary. Before I introduce Professor Douglas, however, permit me to say a few words <coughs> about the Greeley Lecture and a new series here at the Center on Race, Religion, and Nationalism. But before I do that, might I ask you all to silence your cell phones? And I'm going to confirm that mine is the same. Invariably, one goes off, so let's try to make it fewer than uh, six. Um, thank you. And uh, there should be enough seat. Well, there's a few seats up here if anyone's looking for a seat. Um, and there's some, and there's one over there too. Uh, thank you. So the original gift for the Greeley Lecture was made in the honor of the Reverend Dana McLean Greeley, a 1931 graduate of Harvard Divinity School and a prom prominent Unitarian minister and leader. And the lecture series named In His Honor has brought many prominent intellectuals and activists to campus over recent years. We're doing something slightly new with the Greeley Lecture, however. We're dedicating the Greeley Lecture to a specific theme. Upon taking the reins of the center last July, uh, I named um, five themes that will give shape to the center's programming over the course of the next four years. The four years are my term as director. And the most urgent of those themes is one that we're calling race, religion, and nationalism. Now here's the working description of that new series. Across the world today, we witness an alarming rise in old nationalisms, each of which deploys openly or covertly the rhetoric of race and racial hierarchy and of religion and religious hierarchy. We see this happening, for example, across Europe, in the Middle East, in India, and of course, right here in the United States, where white Christian nationalism now has a strong foothold in the executive branch of the federal government. This series on race, religion, and nationalism seeks to critically examine this phenomenon at home and abroad, locally and globally. It will ask such questions as, to what degree does religion fuel this racialized nationalism? In the American context, for example, how does evangelical Christianity support white nationalism? To what degree is racialized nationalism, such as white nationalism, a sort of religion itself, with its own myths, rituals, and ways of life? And to what degree are different racialized nationalisms now affiliating with each other to form international networks. That's a working description, open to revision. The exact shape of the series and the events that we're going to host under its name are still coming into view. But at the very least, we can promise you four years of consistent inquiry into this urgent topic 
by some of the very best hearts and minds we can find. I hope you will agree that there is no one better suited to inaugurate this new chapter in the Greeley Lecture and this new chapter at the center than Professor Kelly Brown Douglas. Professor Douglas did her master's and doctoral studies in systematic theology at Union Theological Seminary under James Cohn. Mm. Professor Douglas's academic work focuses on womanist theology, sexuality, and the black church. Essence Magazine counts her, quote, among this country's most distinguished religious thinkers, teachers, ministers, and counselors. Her latest book, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God examines the challenges of a stand-your-ground culture for the black church. We hosted a very <coughs> productive seminar on this really rather incredible book um, earlier today in this very room. And I'd like to thank my colleague, Professor Todney Thomas, and her students, many of whom are in the room tonight, for engaging so deeply and vividly with Professor Douglas's book. A native of Dayton, Ohio, Professor Douglas was ordained to, uh, I'm sorry, ordained at St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in 1985, the first black woman to be ordained an Episcopal priest in the Southern Ohio Diocese, and one of only five <laughs> nationwide at that time. She was the first to receive the Anna Julia Cooper Award by the Union of Black Episcopalians for, quote, her literary boldness and leadership in the development of a womanist theology and discussing the complexities of Christian faith in African-American contexts. She was an associate priest at Holy Comforter Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. for over 20 years. She currently serves as the canon theologian at the Washington National Cathedral. Prior to taking on the deanship of the newly reconstituted Episcopal Divinity School, she was the Susan D. Morgan Professor of Religion at Goucher College. And prior to that, she was Associate Professor of Theology at Howard University's School of Divinity. I will not embarrass Professor Douglas by listing all her many publications. Suffice to say that they are not only many, but very learned and wise. Thank you again for coming out this evening during this bad weather. <laughs> I'm confident you won't regret your decision. Thank you, Professor Douglas, for giving of your very valuable and limited time in order to give this lecture and engage with our community. And please join me in welcoming Professor Douglas to the podium to deliver the Greeley Lecture. Thank you, Professor Stang, for a very gracious uh, introduction. And thank you, Professor Thompson, again, Thompson, Thomas. Uh, but thank you again for hosting uh, me this afternoon and uh, the time with your class. And what a wonderful uh, reception I have had here on this day. And it is so good to be with all of you here uh, on this campus, in this center. And I thank you for coming out in this weather. I can't promise you that you won't regret it, but <laughs> don't throw anything at me. 
uh, to just go get some hot chocolate or something uh, and uh, warm yourselves up. And it's always great to be back up this way and to be here. And I am especially uh, grateful to be here on this evening at this time because I could see my nephew, who is a student here, Christopher uh, Hobson, whom I have not seen for a while. So he told me he might have to duck out a little early to go to class. I said, yes, you better. <laughs> so, but I thank him for being here as well. Let me begin. And hopefully we will have some time for, we will have some time for questions and conversation and just dialogue. We all know the numbers, yet it is good to be reminded of them. As reported by the Sentencing Project, African-American males are six times more likely to be incarcerated than white males and two and a half times more likely than Hispanic males. Given current trends, the report continues, one of every three African-American males born today can expect to go to prison in his lifetime as can one of every six Hispanic Latino males, compared to one of every 17 white males. When we look at the numbers by states, they are even more startling. Again, taken from the Sentencing proje Project, African Americans are incarcerated in state prisons at a rate that is 5.1 times the imprisonment rate of whites. In five states, Iowa, Minnesota, New Jersey, Vermont, and Wisconsin, the disparity is more than 10 to 1. In 12 states, more than half of the prison population is African American, with my current state of Maryland topping the nation with a 72% African American prison population. Within the state prison systems, Latinx Americans are imprisoned at a rate that is 1.4 times the rate of whites. The disparity of Latinx Americans to whites is particularly high in states such as this one, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New York, where the ratio is three to four times that as whites. The numbers are just as concerning when it comes to women in particular. For while there are more men than women in the prison system, again quoting the sentencing project, the rate of growth for female imprisonment has outpaced men by more than 50% between the years of 1980 and 2014. In fact, between 1980 and 2014, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700%. In 2014, the imprisonment rate for African-American women was twice that of white women, while for Latina women was one and a half times that of white women. Now, we know these numbers, but what are we to say about them? How is it that black and brown bodies are so disproportionately victims of the prison industrial complex? What has made this such a normal reality and embedded in the American landscape? In a June 2013 tweet, Donald Trump said it is, quote, because the overwhelming amount of violent crimes in our major cities is committed by blacks and Hispanics, a tough subject, he said. 
he of course doubled down on this version of reality as he continually repeated some variation of it in his observations concerning Americans, in America's inner cities during his campaign and beyond. You will recall his saying that African Americans, Hispanics, quote, are living in hell because it's so dangerous. You walk down the street, he said, and you get shot. Needless to say, Donald Trump's observations betray the complexity of the matter. Yet at the same time, his observations and comments on crime, or as he puts it, American carnage, reveals the racially insidious nature of the matter. For it has become clear that in his view, the African Americans and the Latinos, as he often refers to us, are synonymous with crime and therefore the people themselves are the problem. In reality, what his comments point to is that which they also ignore. And that is the reality of violence that too often defines the everyday lives of the very people he would see as the problem. Yet, it is not only Trump who ignores the real issues of violence in this nation. When many Americans see coverage of violence in our cities, many view it as shocking and they want it to stop. But what these viewers don't see and what the news does not cover is the violence that is truly shocking. That is the extent of the violence perpetrated against brown and black bodies every single day. The gun violence, for instance, that is often covered in the news is merely sporadic compared to a much larger, pervasive, and mostly ignored racialized violent reality. It is the violence, for instance, of racialized poverty. It is the case, for instance, that blacks have the highest poverty rate, 24.1%, while whites have the lowest, 9%. And in fact, the poverty rate for the black and Latin, Latinx uh, community, and theirs is 21%, more is more than double that of whites. Moreover, while over a four-year period between 2009 and 2013, almost half of whites who were in poverty were able to move above the poverty threshold, only one-third of blacks and Latinx persons were able to do the same. An even more disconcerting manifestation of this racialized cycle of violence is its impact on young black and brown bodies. According to the reports from the Children's Defense Fund, black and Latinx children continue to suffer disproportionately from poverty, with the youngest children most at risk for being poor. One in three black children and more than one in four Latinx children were poor in 2015, compared to one in eight white children. Nearly one in six black children and one in nine Latinx children were living in extreme poverty compared to one in 17 white children. More than one in three black children under age five were poor, and one in five were extremely poor. While black children had the highest poverty rate, the largest number of poor children were Latinx children. The unrelenting color line of race in America speaks to the troubling reality that black and brown bodies are now and always have been prime targets of not simply unrelenting violence, but unacknowledged violence. Again, the question is why? What is the root of such violence? And as we contemplate this evening, what are the implications of this for God's peace? 
In a 1967 speech defending black protesters' rights to use violence to, as he said, rid ourselves of oppression, Jamel Abdullah Al-Amin, then known as H. Rap Brown, said this, he said, violence is a part of America's culture. It is as American as cherry pie. While Al-Amin's Al words received much criticism at the time, he actually spoke a truth about America, especially when it came to brown and black bodies that perhaps he did not even fully grasp. For the violence to which these bodies fall prey in America <laughs> reflects the coming together of two narratives that are endemic to America's identity. I want to look at these narratives so again we can begin to understand their challenges to us and the implications for the meaning of God's peace. These narratives are the narrative of anti-blackness and the narrative of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism or white supremacy. Let me turn first to this narrative of anti-blackness. The narrative of anti-blackness became most conspicuous with Europeans' earliest incursions into the African continent. While ancient Greek and Roman scholars were certainly chauvinistic when it came to appraising the body aesthetic of their own people, there is little evidence that color prejudice was integral in their thought or culture. In general, the reality of color prejudice is of Western origination coming into full relief with the earliest European encounters with Africa. While the belief that Africans were meant to be slaves was prevalent prior to European encroachments upon the African continent, an anti-black narrative was not as apparent until their arrival. As the historian Winthrop Jordan says, one of the fairest skinned nations, the English, suddenly came face to face with one of the darkest peoples on the earth. Whether describing Africans as black was initially done with purposeful malicious intent is debatable. What is clear is that the skin color is that skin color mattered to the Europeans in their encounters with a people seemingly starkly different from themselves. Furthermore, black was not a benign signifier. No less an authority, for instance, than the Oxford English Dictionary had already established whiteness as a sign of innocence, purity, and goodness, while blackness signified vileness, danger, and evil, not to speak of the Bible. As far apart as the English complexion was from the African, the meaning of whiteness was from blackness. Consequently, to describe the Africans as black ensured that the Eurocentric color-defined gaze would not remain innocent, if it ever was. It was only the beginning of an anti-blackness that provided the aesthetic justification for the enslavement and other violent acts against the bodies of black men and women. As crucial as skin color was, it was not the only physical feature that astonished these early white intruders and soon-to-be pillagers of Africa, nor was it the only aspect of the anti-black narrative. Europeans also noted the fullness of the Africans' lips, the broadness of their noses, and the texture of their hair. It soon became very clear that there was more at play than just a shock realization of the diversity of human creation. In the European imagination, the Africans' physiognomy signaled a genetic difference. 
when coupled with the dissimilarity of dress and customs, not to speak of religions, the European interlopers became convinced that the blackness of the Africans was more than skin deep. They believed it penetrated through to the very character and soul of the people, which of course many Europeans claimed Africans did not possess thereby signaling a people who were so thoroughly uncivilized that they were more beastly than human and certainly not divine. Now, this beastly descriptor, which became common, implied not simply that they were wild and unci uncivilized, but also hypersexualized. As Winthrop Jordan points out, the terms bestial and beastly carried with them sexual connotations. Thus, when an Englishman described the Africans as beastly, he was, as Jordan says, frequently as much registering a sense of sexual shock as describing swinish manners. Adding to this was the unfortunate circumstance that the Europeans presumably had their first encounter with the African apes at the same time that they had their first encounter with the people of Africa. It required, therefore, a small leap in the European imagination to conceive of an inherent connection between the African apes and the African people. Once such a tie was forged, it was an even, even easier leap of logic for the Europeans to assume, as Winthrop Jordan remarks, a quote-unquote beastly copulation or conjuncture, end quote, between the two species. Excuse me. It was in this way that blackness came to signal a people who were grossly uncivilized and dangerously hypersexualized. If nothing else, it was clear to the white intruders that these were a people who needed to be patrolled and controlled, given their desolate character and beastly disposition. Now, before I go further, I must point out the unique bearing this narrative of anti-blackness had upon black women from the earliest beginnings. For the European gaze was not only shaped by color, but also by gender. Thus, it involved a racialized standard of beauty that indicated whether or not one was a proper woman. The visage of a beautiful woman in the English mind was well established during the Elizabethan period with the queen serving as the perfect exemplar of it. Once again, this aesthetic assessment was not benign when it came to black women in America, especially given the enslaved realities of their lives. As far away as black women were from the standard of white beauty, they were also from the standard of femininity and what it meant to be a lady. As is well documented, black women became the perfect foil to white women while white women were considered virginal, pure angels in need of protection, black women were considered wanton, lascivious Jezebels in need of controlling. The violent nature of the anti-black narrative itself now becomes clear. It is about more than a chauvinistic repulsion to skin color and cultural differences. It is a narrative that negates the very humanity of a people thereby making it inherently violent. Any ideology or system of thought that objectifies or dehumanizes another human being must absolutely be understood as violent. Furthermore, as we will see, 
Such a system of thought initiates a cycle of violence in which the objectified, dehumanized being, in this instance, black bodies, becomes entrapped. This brings us to the centrality of this narrative to the American identity and another violent narrative that it comes together with. The anti-black narrative arrived in America most explicitly with the Puritans and Pilgrims. When Americans, Pilgrim and Puritan forebears, fled England in search of freedom, they believed themselves descendant of an ancient Anglo-Saxon people who uniquely possessed high moral values and quote unquote an intrinsic love for freedom. Their beliefs reflected an Anglo-Saxon myth instigated by a first century philosopher, many of you this will be reviewed, who touted the distinctive superiority of these Anglo-Saxon people from the ancient woods of Germany. Fueled by this Anglo-Saxon myth, the early Americans crossed the Atlantic with a vision to build a nation that was politically and culturally, if not demographically, true to their exceptional Anglo-Saxon heritage. As such, America was envisioned as a testament to the sacredness of Anglo-Saxon character and values, if not people. American exceptionalism was Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism. American identity was equated with Anglo-Saxon identity. Now in order to safeguard America's mythic Anglo-Saxon vision and sense of self, a pervasive culture of whiteness was born. Thus whiteness became the perfect way to mask the fact that America was an immigrant nation with migrants, even from Europe, who were not actually Anglo-Saxon. The elevation of whiteness was inevitable since, as noted earlier, whiteness had come to signify purity and moral innocence, a skin tone therefore befitting quote-unquote exceptional Anglo-Saxons. Invariably, therefore, whiteness forged an impregnable wall between America's myth of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism and that which might compromise it such as those persons on the other side of whiteness. Hence the birth of white culture with an anti-black narrative as its defining feature was born. After all, there was nothing more opposed to whiteness than blackness, not only in color, but also in what it had come to signify about a people. It is this opposition between whiteness and blackness that forms the basis of white supremacist ideology. In the words of legal scholar Cheryl Harris, quote, the amalgamation of various European strains into an American identity, that is Anglo-Saxon identity, was facilitated by an oppositional definition of black as other, end quote. It is this oppositionality between whiteness and blackness that forms, again, the basis of white supremacist ideology. With the emergence of this white supremacist ideology, two things become clear. First, to state the obvious, the ideology of white supremacy depends upon the narrative of anti-blackness, since the notion of white superiority rests on the ideal of black inferiority. Second, Whiteness itself must be regarded as a violent identity construct inasmuch as it is defined by denigrating that which is non-white, most notably blackness. This brings us back 
to the fact of white culture. To, re to reiterate, if America's mythic Anglo-Saxon white identity was to be protected, then blackness had to be repelled at all costs. And this is the job of white culture. White culture, in its various manifestations, is that which perpetuates the ideal of white superiority, and especially through its legal and extra-legal expressions, helps whiteness to stand its ground against any corrupting or threatening intrusions into the white Anglo-Saxon space. And so once again, the reality of America's inherent identity is violent. For like white identity, or I'm sorry, uh, of white culture is violent. For like white identity, white culture in all of its expressions is intrinsically violent given its necessary anti-black nature. The fact of the matter is this, that as long as American identity is ground, America's identity is grounded in the myth of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism, and it is, then it is grounded in violence. In this regard, there is no getting around it. Anti-blackness is a part of America's original DNA, and so is Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism. And so it seems that not only is violence in general as American as cherry pie, but so too is violence against non-white bodies, in, particularly, in particular black bodies. So let's look a little more specifically at the impact of the deadly violence of anti-blackness. This is a violence, as has been suggested, that goes beyond the racially biased war on drugs, the biased policing, and tough on crime measures. This is a violence, indeed, that has its most greatest impact, as has also been pointed out, upon the most vulnerable of those non-white bodies, children. It is a violence whose greatest reality and most per pervasive reality is perhaps the cycle of violence created by the violence that is poverty. But before I go on, let me say something most particularly about the reality of gun violence, for that is about which we hear so much in the news, particularly as it is expressed in terms of black-on-black -black homicides and black-on-black -black crime. Polo Freire is right to say that violence is rarely, if at all, initiated by the oppressed. Given, for instance, the violent culture of poverty, which is best understood in my mind as a culture of death, with its realities of lack of decent job, housing, educational, and recreational opportunities, the high rate of gun violence within our cities, given this culture, should come of no surprise. Indeed, what is more surprising are the number of black and brown persons that are able to survive and thrive with dignity in conditions that intend their death and not the abundant life which God promises all of us. 
But there is an even more disconcerting reality when it comes to the fact of guns. And that is the narrative that, as Victor Rio says, criminalizes black and Latinx persons even before they have done anything criminal. A narrative that, again, is central to America's collective identity and has insinuated itself into the collective consciousness of Americans. Consequently, successfully implanted deep within the American psyche is the image of black and brown bodies as, a dangerously, as dangerously criminal bodies and thus an ever-present threat to whiteness. Indeed, there are numerous studies that reveal almost automatic unconscious responses to these bodies as if they are threatening and violent in and of themselves. Given then the pervasive impact of the anti-black narrative on the white imagination, it is no wonder that it was easier for the public to paint, for instance, 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, who had no ju juvenile record, as a thug who deserved to be killed while giving his killer, who had a police record, a pass. Nor should it be a surprise to any of us that the officer who shot and killed 18-year-old Michael Brown thought it reasonable to describe him as a demon, just as it seemed reasonable to the officer who killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice to mistake him for a 21-year-old threatening man, or that an officer would perceive Sandra Bland as threatening during a traffic stop that led to her arrest and subsequent death. The point of the matter is this, that as long as the violent narrative of anti-blackness is a decisive aspect of America's Anglo-Saxon identity, then black and brown bodies will be disproportionately impacted by denigrating and deadly violence, that which is seen and that which is ignored. To reiterate, because it cannot be said enough, the narrative of anti-blackness is violent as its sole purpose is the denigration and dehumanization of a people. This narrative alone would have a devastating impact on black lives. However, as it is interacted with America's narrative of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism and thus become an integral part of America's identity, it is even more deadly. Moreover, I should point out that these narratives and guns don't mix, which means that America and guns are a most deadly combination for particular groups of people, that is, non-white peoples, given the fact that, again, these narratives are endemic to America's identity. And hence, Amin's observation takes on even greater meaning, as it would seem that gun violence is just as American as cherry pie. Now, before looking at the meaning of God's peace in light of such violence, I must say a word about a violent vision for America to which a majority of white Americans and white Christians in particular actually gave their support. A vision which reflects both of these narratives, the violent vision to make America great again. That the vision to make America great again is a 21st century effort to carry forth the legacy of the Anglo-Saxon myth and the culture of whiteness that protects it was made abundantly clear during President Trump's campaign to, uh, for presidency, for the presidency. Recovery of America's greatness was shrewdly associated with the country ridding itself of non-white immigrants 
whose very presence, according to Trump, has sent the nation spiraling into social disarray and moral decadence. To bolster this prescription for America's greatness, Trump trafficked in and continues to traffic in disparaging misrepresentations of immigrants as criminals and of African-American communities as dangerous enclaves of criminality. And in fact, we just saw that again uh, last night. His vision for greatness therefore resonates with those who have longed for an Anglo-Saxon white America. And so it is no surprise that Trump's solution to, the Amer to America's carnage is one that ignores the violence of white supremacy that destroys brown and black lives and instead seeks to protect the greatness of America that is white. Thus, his administration puts forth a law and order agenda that doubles down on the kind of sentencing that will again enhance the prison industrial complex. We need law and order, he says. If we don't have it, we're not going to have a country. If there's any doubt of what he means, all one has to do is look at the White House website and the mandate by Attorney General Jeff Sessions to seek the highest penalty for crimes committed, basically re-energizing the mandatory sentencing that proved to be racist. As for the reality of violence that is poverty, as Trump's Secretary of HUD, Dr. Ben Carson said, that is in one's mind. Thus again, demonizing the victims as opposed to recognizing the violence of poverty itself. Overall, in the Make America Great Again vision, police officers and other law enforcement agents as well as social agencies become overseers in black and brown communities so to ensure the protection of white Anglo-Saxon space. Likewise, Trump's restrict restrictive immigration policies and attacks upon DACA reflect again the violent culture of whiteness. In the end, the mantra of greatness has been a clarion call to action for those who have clung tightly to the Anglo-Saxon white vision of America. No one made this clearer than past imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, David Duke, when he said, quote, we are determined to take our country back. We are going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump. That's what we believed in. That's why we voted for Donald Trump, because he said he is going to take our country back. That's what we're going to do, end quote. Now, here is the most dis disconcerting fact of all. And that is, not only did 81% of white evangelical Protestants support this violent vision, but so too did 58% of non-evangelical white Protestants and 60% of white Catholics. In general, white Christian America found common cause with a violent vision for America's greatness. And so, what are we to make of that? What are the implications for the faith community in light of God's peace? I will talk about this in particular in relationship to the Christian narrative with uh, implications for the wider faith community as well. Within the Christian tradition, the meaning of God's peace is ironically found in the very reality of the cross. There is no doubt that the cross reflects the depth and scope of human violence. The cross in this respect re represents the consuming violence of the world. It points to a world that is saturated with and thus held captive to a culture of violence, which is nothing less than a culture of sin. 
Such, in fact, is the original sin of America, that is, the violence of whiteness. So America is held captive to its original sin. This violence, as we've said, includes not simply the physical brutality meant to harm bodies, but also the system, structures, narrative, and constructs that do harm, including the narrative of anti-blackness and the systems and structures it fosters in conjunction with anti-Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism. To reiterate, anything, anything that would devalue the life of another, whether it's an ideal, whether it's a narrative, system or structure, anything that does that is inherently violent. Through Jesus, God enters into this world of violence, yet does not take it into God's self. Thus, God responds to the violence of the world, not in an eye-for-eye manner. Instead, God responds in a way that negates and denounces the violence that perverts and demeans the integrity of human lives. God accomplishes this by affirming life as seen in the very resurrection of Jesus. Now before going further, it must also be pointed out that God affirms life by entering into solidarity with those whose lives are most defined, most integrated, and most destroyed by crucifying violence, if you will. On the cross, in other words, God makes common cause with the crucified classes of people in our world. Essentially, God responds to the violence of the cross the violence of the world on the side of the most crucified in a nonviolent but forceful manner. Black feminist literary artist and social critic Audre Lorde once said, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change, she says. What in the Christian tradition the crucifixion resurrection event reveals is that God does not use the master's tools. God does not utilize the violence exhibited in the cross to defeat deadly violence itself. As Lord suggests, while this may bring a temporary solution, it does not bring an end to the culture of deadly violence itself. Rather, one stays entrapped in that very culture. As such, as she says, only the most narrow parameters of change are possible and allowable. This implies, therefore, that the only way to defeat violent power is with nonviolent means. It is important, however, to understand that nonviolence is not the same as passivity or accommodation to violence. Rather, it is a forceful response that protects the integrity of life. This is even clearer when in the Christian tradition as one recognizes that Jesus was crucified in the first place not because he prayed, but because of his active forceful resistance to the violent political and religious powers and structures of his time, which trapped various persons in violent, hence crucifying realities of living. Perhaps he was able to do this because he prayed, and that because he prayed, he was able to then go to the cross. The point is that while violence seeks to denigrate and do harm to the bodies of people, nonviolence seeks to free bodies from denigrating and deadly violence. By not resorting to violence, nonviolence breaks the very cycle of violence itself. It is in this way that I think of the crucifixion resurrection event as nothing less than a counter-narrative to the very crucifying violent narratives that we have just spoken about. This leads us then 
to the fact of the peace of God. God's peace is freedom from the violence that distorts the human person. It is the elimination, in other words, of systems, constructs, and all actualities of violence. It is then nothing less than God's justice. No justice, no peace. No peace. God's peace thus requires a radical restructuring of a political, social, and economic order that is sustained by and thus creates crucified classes of people. These again are the very narratives of anti-blackness and white supremacy along with the structures, systems, and cultures of violence that foster and sustain them. As Daniel Day Williams once said, God's justice is manifest and God working to put down the unrighteous, expose idols, show mercy, and achieve reconciliation in a new order which expresses human beings' dignity as the divine bearers of, as the bearers of the divine image. God's justice, he says, means a restoration of the sacred dignity of all people. It is, it seems to me, again, in this way, that the crucifixion resurrection event reflects nothing less than a counter-narrative to crucifying narratives of violence. And this brings me quickly to this matter of narratives. Like, what can we do? Even as people must consistently resist and dismantle the systems and structures that serve to protect the myth of Anglo-Saxon white exceptionalism and, and spawns anti-blackness, something just as essential must be done to counter these various narratives of violence against non-white bodies. That is, there must be actual counter-narratives that affirms the value of black and brown people. These narratives must disrupt the collective consciousness of America if black and brown bodies are ever to be truly free from the various violent manifestations of America's whiteness and anti-blackness. And this is where people, excuse me, and this is where people of all faiths must take the lead. In this regard, the refrain Black Lives Matter is just as significant as that movement's active protest against systemic and structural violence perpetrated against black bodies. For the refrain itself offers a direct counter-narrative to a narrative of anti-blackness as it loudly affirms the sacred value of black lives. So in the end, it is essential that the Black Lives Matter refrain be consistently repeated in the public square so that perhaps it will seep into the collective consciousness of America. Moreover, our theologies must reflect the importance of a God who is understood only through the diversity of God's creation. If we are to know God at all, we must experience that God through the fullness of God's richly diverse human creation. That is, through all of those, everyone who has breath that bears God's image which means that if we are going to counter those images that demonize and degrade non-white bodies, then we must put forth images that reveal them as sacred. Hence again, 
the images and icons, for instance, which are in our sacred spaces, must be bathed in more than whiteness. And most importantly, just as we resist the narratives of violence, we must be also proactive in showing forth the very meaning of God's justice, of God's peace. We can't just react. We must be proactive. Audre Lorde, I'm going to bring this to an end and we can talk. Audre Lorde has reminded us that our silence will not save us, and she is right. Our silence has not and will not save us from the violence of Anglo-Saxon exceptionalism and anti-blackness. Therefore, we must proactively witness against it. In 1961, James Baldwin declared, the time has come, God knows, he said, for us to examine ourselves. But we can do this only if we are willing to free ourselves of the myth of America and try to find out what is really happening here and tell the truth. My friends, the time has come for us to decide who we want to be as a nation, who we want to be as a people. Are we to be a nation that is defined by racialized greatness, or a nation that is defined by justice and freedom for all? Are we to be a people of an Anglo-Saxon God, or are we to be a people of a God in whose image we are all? created. I'll end there. I was going to say, I'm to take questions and I see one pop right up. So one of the suggestions that you offered up, you said there must be counter-narratives that affirm the value of black people, and they must disrupt the consciousness of America. And then you mentioned Black Lives Matter. So then I'm thinking about, well, that was a counter-narrative that That's affirmed right. the value of black people. Um, it disrupted the consciousness of America, and some of them rejected it. Some of them wanted to replace it with another narrative to be more inclusive. And it just seemed like white people had a hard time accepting that, right? So I wonder, I mean, I'm still stuck on the disruption because I'm, I'm looking at disruption as like the stages of grief, right? At first there comes denial, right? And I just wonder if you can talk us through what that disruption, disruption looked like because it seems like mere acceptance of it um, is not gonna come just by hearing the affirmation. So no, that's right. Did you, no, no, I didn't you mean to. First of all, that's right. It's not going to come by just hearing the affirmation, but it's very interesting that Look how powerful, and this is why words matter, ideals matter, narratives matter. These things, these things, none of these things are ever benign, right? They have life, they find life, they create life. So just the fact, look what happened. This tells us something about this narrative of anti-blackness and whiteness standing its ground. Just the fact that folks said black lives matter, look how disruptive that became. Look at, you would think, well, okay, Black Lives Matter, okay. <laughs> right? Instead of people just saying, we know that. 
That's all they did. They could have just said if, if, if this was one the problem, they could have just said, well, yeah, we already know that. They didn't say that. What they did was they pushed back against that narrative. And what we saw was whiteness standing its ground, right? And whiteness was not going to give sway to this because of what, what's going on here is then you are allowing black lives to enter into a space that was not meant for them. Because to suggest that black lives matter, it's not only an affirmation of one's humanity, but it's an affirmation of the fact that these black lives have a right to the same kind of freedoms and all of that that white lives do. And that wasn't going to happen. So black lives don't matter that much, right? So whiteness stood its ground. And I keep saying the very fact that people got upset over those little words tells you something about the depth and the reality of white supremacy and anti-blackness in the very identity of America. Because what it's also really saying is that black people can be Americans, but the American identity is not supposed to be. And, and Charles Mills up here, uh, was up here once, taught here. He said that. It wasn't meant for that. That's the first thing. So don't, don't take too lightly the disruption Right? of just that narrative of those words that they, they mattered. Right? So then what does one do with, uh, uh, beyond that? Well, uh, first let me answer your other point. The uh, sort of the stages of that. So now this is what this means. The first thing that of course happens is most folk, a lot of folks push back. And this refrain, white lives matter, was not innocent. Right? That was nothing less than whiteness standing its ground and refusing to recognize someone else into that space. So that wasn't innocent. And that's one of the things that, that happens with sort of white supremacy and white racism and, and whiteness. It masquerades itself to try to mystify the reality. And so it's like, well, we're saying all lives matter, right? And so what it's really doing is mystifying the fact of white supremacy and white racism that is there. Because it's like, who could deny that all lives matter? No. That's not what you meant. You know, sort of just like making America great again. No, we know what you meant. So that's the first thing. And so which, which means this. It's not denial. It's a recognition of what you have to give up, right? And the unwillingness to do just that. The privilege of whiteness has to be given up. And I say, and you heard me say uh, before, it's not about people who happen to look like white Americans. Just because you happen to look like a white American don't mean you have to act like one. And one of the things that these refrains called like White Lives Matter calls out is white people who have, those who happen to look like white Americans and live into it and accept that privilege. And you have to recognize the privilege of whiteness and then give it up and live over and against it. And what does that mean? What does that look like? You're called out. And so Black Lives Matter calls that out. And even it pricked, I, I bet, I bet, it's some people, you know, you think of someone, people that were on the political scene, and they were called to account for saying all lives matter, and then they had to figure out, huh, why was it so easy for me to say that and not say black lives matter? Right? It's an indictment. And so sort of like calling out and naming the demon. I can't remember the last part of your, what, your question. Well, we go from narratives, we go from, uh, it doesn't stop there. 
because what it suggests is a construction, see, and, and it's what's happening, quote unquote, in the Black Lives Matter uh, movement as it moves forward, is that we go, that refrain rather itself constructs a different reality. You imagine, what's the reality that you imagine when you say Black Lives Matter? What does the world have to look like? Right? For black, so that's that's not e only a simply a statement of fact, but it's also a call. It's a challenge, and that's the other thing that people heard. What kind of world do you have to construct for Black Lives to matter? And so, yeah, I'm gonna let you all play nice. I saw a lot of hands play play nice in the sandbox, as they say. <laughs> I was just going to follow up on Maisha's question, and, um, and uh, first of all, thank you so much. Um, and, and just to ask about if we are going to engage in creating these counter-discursive narratives so that we can be proactive. Um, there, there's a question of, um, you quote Michelle Alexander in your book, uh, who talks about race uh, and its constructs that allow its formulation to be highly adaptable to so socio-cultural, you know, histories. Um, and so how do we then make sure that we're not constantly in a space of reacting to the adaptability of these racial constructs and our counter-discursive narratives become this, like, just adaptable reactions? Yeah, that's why I said we have to always do more than react, all right? And we have to begin to construct a different uh, reality. Uh, let me say one brief thing and then uh, to that, back to uh, this question about the power, discourse has power. And that's how, and we talked about this earlier, that's how particularly subjugating power enacts itself, discursively and productively, not coercively. And so, again, through the, the Black Lives Matter refrain showed the power of those narratives uh, the, and, and, and the power of discourse. So what, what do we do that we, how do we get out of the trap of uh, always simply reacting and staying really entrapped within this very violent cycle because that's what we're doing and we're just reconstructing new realities uh, uh, within a cycle of violence or an uh, unjust cycle. Well, hmm, that's, that's a good question, hard. Uh, <laughs> But here's, here's the thing. We have to be guided by the possibilities, a, a, what I call a moral imagination, the possibilities of what can be. That's what has to pull us and energize us, right? We cannot be energized by always reacting to what is. We have to change our gaze. I, I talk about it as being sort of proleptic, living into the as, I, as if, and living into the sort of uh, reality of the way things are gonna be. And if we don't have, and here, I wanna say some, if we don't have that vision and don't live into that, then we always find ourselves reacting and we're never constructing anything. We're always reacting to what is. We're always reacting to injustice and not creating spaces of justice. And the more we react to injustice, well, we do injustice's job. 
because we aren't creating a new space. And it's one of the things that we talk about what's going on right now uh, in our culture. I mean, you know, as bad as the administration is, and, and I don't take that lightly at all, but we can't simply react to that, right? We've got to begin to construct new realities, a new way of being instead of simply reacting, because we're just caught in this cycle of reacting. And, and the reality of that, uh, whether he's there or not, is going to live with us uh, for a while. But here's what's interesting. Imagine, what, is, what would the world look like if Black Lives Matter? What would you do? What is justice? What's a just world look like? You ever thought about, what's a just world look like? Mm -hmm. And how do you construct that? Hmm? How does our theological and philosophical and political ideology and rhetoric move beyond that? Because it only remains, or our ideals, it only remains rhetoric if, we, if it moves beyond that. How do we really talk about socially impactful leadership and what that looks like? How do policies get written? <coughs> this is, a, how do we do that? How do we change, not simply the discourse, how do, we, how do we change the landscape? What's very interesting to me, people say, so how is it that, for instance, particularly Christians complain about how uh, white event, conservative white evangelical Protestants have, have uh, claimed the narrative? And, and Christians always say, oh, I'm just so embarrassed to even say I'm a Christian. Because they've just, you know, claimed the narrative, right? You heard that? People say that? Yeah. Oh, I don't even want to say I'm a Christian. Well, to, that's shame on you, not on them. Uh, uh, then you need to go out there and claim who you are. But, and I shame on us. But here's the thing. They know what they stand for. You ask them what kind of world they want and how they, they'll tell you. quote unquote, the others, progress, whomever, progressive, liberals, whatever, they know what they stand against. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you ask us the world with the, to construct the world and what we stand for, mm -hmm. and everybody's fighting. Yeah. I'm serious, I'm just being practical, look at it. Progressives don't know, they can't get together, they don't know, you say, what's justice look like? And they can tell you what it isn't, but they can't tell you what it is. Now you ask them on the other side. They know what kind of world they want. They're clear. And that's why they are, but that's how come they can control an electorate and control a people. They're very clear. We've got to begin to articulate a vision. And we've got to begin to implement and try to implement that vision. They're doing it. They're taking away voters' rights. And what are we doing? We're hollering about them taking away voters' rights. I'm serious. I mean, I'm serious. You know, and I always say this to uh, people uh, at the seminary uh, uh, union and uh, EDS, you know, Jesus said feed the hungry, not think about feeding the hungry. So then we better figure out how to do it. So I just say you got to redirect your energy. 
yeah, you got you. We got protests. That's good, uh, but we can't spend our time. Right. I mean, that's good. That, that's that. You. We got to do that. We got to let folk know we're around, but we can't. That can't be where we stop. That can't be where all of our energy goes. We have to construct another world. Dr. Douglas, thank you again for, for being here. Um, thank you. To your theme about constructing a different reality, though I've been wrestling with thoughts around that exact same idea. Um, so for me, around constructing a new reality, my question is how then do we help white people see themselves in a narrative of Black Lives Matter? Um, well, and in the in, in constructing a new reality, how do we lift up blackness, or rather reframe blackness, so that way it's easy to be seen as an expression of the Imago Day versus versus an antithesis of the Imago Day? Yep. Thank you. First, um, I just want to nu nuance a little bit, push not nuance, push back a little bit. Um, I don't. We don't have to help white people see that black lives matter. And that's the job of white people who claim to get it. Then they need to help other white people get it. Well, right? For clarity, my but point is not to help them see that black lives matter, but to see themselves as a black life that matters. Well, you know, they got to get there. Uh, and, 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 but here's how, and, and I'm, I am way serious about this, uh, because this is not simply our work. And it is their work. And so get that, and we talked about this this afternoon a little bit, get that they are as raced as we are raced. And their humanity is, James Baldwin always said, their humanity is more at stake than our humanity, and especially because they don't know it. Uh, it's taken. Baldwin said this long, and he's right. And so again, you know, it is about if we, Here's where I want to begin to have conversations with white people, and I think those conversations are important, and we should have those conversations, but I'm not going to initiate those conversations, say, in a room like this. Those conversations are initiated because we will both find ourselves having shown up in the same place fighting for justice. And it is out of that, that's what praxis is all about, is out of that then that conversation begins. And then we're, we're colleagues, we're, we're, you know, in this solidarity together. That's what I say in relationship to what our interactions in that regard should be, not just for white people, but folks that don't see themselves uh, as uh, that this is their problem or a problem for them. How do we help them to... Uh, see that black lives matter, we begin to construct a world that, that says that black lives matter. And I, th we have work that we have, we have to do the work in the places in which we find ourselves that affirms that. And so that means that we don't let them, let anyone off the hook in terms of the kind of policies that are implemented and created the kind of things, law, all these things, there are many things that are happening that we don't, we aren't even aware of because we're so busy reacting to this little superficial stuff that is, that is going on. Uh, you know, we look at some of the same time that, I can't remember what it was that the president said and everyone's attention was turned to what he said. And at that same time, 
the attorney general was impl right mm -hmm. implementing there was like a five prong plan yes. that he was implementing while we were all worried about what something the president said mm -hmm. and now wow that was important mm -hmm. uh, but that wasn't gonna have a whole lot of life what, was, what now ha is embedded and has a life is this thing that he has done in terms of uh, if there, one of the parts of the law, one about uh, gangs, uh, infiltrating gangs or whatever, and the other thing was about if you have any sort of hostile responses to police officers and, and the way in which that has now become uh, a, a major crime. And so while we're worried about the president calling us out of our name, well, we know he's gonna call us out of our name, so let's just move on. Uh, uh, and so I think that we have to begin to really, really engage ourselves in creating and the kind of policies and, and not letting, how do I say this, not letting there be a moment when we don't raise our voice, offering another alternative reality to the kind of policies, uh, structure, systems, bans, all these things that he's putting forth, but we're silent. And I mean, we are virtually silent. And the faith community is silent. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm somewhere, it's, and I'm just not hearing them. But I'm serious. But they're silent. And so we've got to begin to act like our lives matter. Now, let me tell you one little glimpse of where that happened. And we know, down there in Alabama. Mm -hmm. And let's not get too slap happy, because that was black women. Mm -hmm. Right. And they stood up and took control of what was going on down there. And they actually did put forth an alternative vision. And, that's, and it seems to me when we do that, that calls other people out. And those people that are there will get on board or they won't. But I can't worry about those that don't get on board. But I think there are enough that recognize the truth of what's going on and the truth that they don't want to be a part of. Because I basically, I do believe this. I do believe this with all the, the fiber of my being that most people in America, and in this instance, of course, we're talking about white Americans, are not uh, malevolent, uh, intentional racists. They are not. That I believe that they aren't aware of the ways in which, indeed, they are complicit in that racism. I think we are now at a time in America where one cannot say that they are unaware. <coughs> and so that means that people have to make a choice. And it's a hard choice for some people who are so used to living unawares in their privilege. I think, I do, I, I, I do. <laughs> I do believe that that people will make the right choice. One of the things that helps them do that is if we move in a different direction and point a different direction. And I really do believe that. And regain the momentum moving toward a more just world. And I think there are opportunities for us to do that. You look at people like Barbara and the Poor People's Campaign. 
He's talking about what justice looks like. Right. So I don't know if that answered answered your question. I don't know. Uh, duh, because my answer it's reveals the complexity and the confounding nature of the problem. Because it is, it's confounding. And I have to believe that, well, I do believe people are good because everything that God created was good. So I, I do believe that. And so how do we make people aware of what is it? Here's my question. What is it that has prevented us from seeing the humanity of another? We have to recognize that, name it, and empty ourselves of it. What is it that has prevented white people from seeing the humanity of non-white peoples? What is it? We have to name that. And this is where these things like anti-black narratives come into play. And they have to recognize how much that has become insinuated, whether or not they will admit it or wanted to recognize it before, into their consciousness. And it's those little things, you know, that white people react to unconsciously. That, you know, say for instance, you see a group of white guys hanging out on the street, you, what do you do? Oh, they're being kids. Then what's that little twinge you have when you see a group of black guys? You gotta name that. You gotta name, that's that unconscious whiteness. You got to name it and let it go because it's standing in the way of you seeing another person's humanity. So I don't know. It is confounding, uh, and I'm one to struggle with you. I mean, it's it's confounding and scary. Thank you so much. For um, I wanted to pick on uh, you quoted more a couple of times. Yeah. You sort of moved with this in terms of how uh, rejecting the master's tool can be a way of rejecting violence towards a non-violent uh, means of resistance. I want, I want to sort of think a little about, or, or I want to hear what you think about another way where lords and others' uh, narratives were adopted, which is in the tradition of Afro-pessimism, <laughs> where we have you know, the work of Spillers and Wilderson and Bembe and, and others, and at the same time, how can this, how does this fit within a narrative of, or what do you think about it within a narrative of uh, resistance? And how do we take what you described in your talk, but also in relation to Afro-pessimism, and think about the anti-black narratives and the white supremacy narratives and the making of America, but in this case, it's imperialist role outside. So mm -hmm. how do we think about Haiti, for instance? How do we think about um, you know, Africa itself? Uh, well, they're all, yeah. No, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, and how do we think about, and in this case, how does this nonviolent engagement take place when we're thinking about white supremacy as a mode of imperialism? And how, again, you know, I, I go back to the question of Afro-pessimism as a mode of resistance that, that thrived for quite some time, and also that was ado adopted in many cases by native resistance. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about Walter Simpson's Because I was going to say, tell me what, when you think of Afro-pessimism, tell me what, because Afro-pessimism, uh, uh, tell me what you're thinking about. I'm thinking about the traditions of rejection, abstention, renunciation, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, that again, that had a lot of their 
implications in around the world more than in the United States in particular. But I want to see, but in many cases, they adopted the same view or the same, and, and people use the same code that used for Lord to think about, you know, all of this are the master's tools. And you need to completely abstain and reject in order to be able to actually move beyond the master's tool. Which again, it, it doesn't say that you can never use it, but that real change requires this pessimism of the master's yeah. tool. So I, I want to hear. But, well, yeah, there's a pessimism. I'm, First of all, Afro-pessimism, as is this critique, is always global, is global in nature. It's also um, globally pervasive, right? And so the question, so here's the question for Afro-pessimism, and it's, it's it, how do you get outside of the culture? Because you see, as everything is corrupted, so now, how do you get outside of that culture? What, that's, all, that's my, beyond the sort of particulars of Afro-pessimism, because I do find it a little misogynistic, uh, uh, and more than a little. Uh, uh, a little, ma I'll put it, a little masculinist. Uh, uh, and so in many respects, it's like the 21st century version of uh, what was then um, Afrocentrism. Uh, uh, so how, and this is why the roots run deep, how do you get outside of sort of this culture that negates blackness? How does one get outside of that? And I don't know that one gets outside of that, except that one has to name it, critique it, recognize it, and then construct counter-narratives. And so otherwise, where do we land? And I think that's the quote unquote pessimistic uh, version of things. Where do you land if indeed you can't get outside of it, you recognize the global pervasive nature of it, so where, how do you land on the other side of it? And I don't know what is the constructive project of Afro-pessimism. And I'm, I'm asking that rhetorically. Uh, duh, and yeah, <laughs> as a critique of it. I mean, because I really don't know what the constructive pro because I don't disagree. Uh, but what, I, I don't disagree with the embeddedness, if you will, of the problem. I don't at all disagree with that. But what's the constructive side of that narrative? And that's where they, tell me an Afro-pessimist who's constructed a different reality. And that's where they leave you, I think. Uh, and I'm not an Afro-pessimist, so I haven't read all of the Afro-pessimists that you have read. And I'm not, yeah, and so uh, uh, the uh, closest, though he, he says that he's not one, sort of people theologically try to make Vincent Lloyd uh, in theology, if you're familiar with Vincent Lloyd's writings, an Afro-pessimist, uh, and he says he's not. But, uh, but, but what they do recognize is the pervasiveness of the quote-unquote uh, anti-black narrative. Uh, but how, yeah, I just have the same, how do you get outside of that culture? And so what you're saying is that you're always using the master's tools. Is that what you're suggesting? Not exactly. What, what I'm suggesting, I mean, again, I think, the, I think you recognize the idea of the global nature of Afro-pessimism. So in a way, and again, I'm not an Afro-pessimist, but I think the constructive project 
yeah, what happened actually, a lot of the constructive projects happened in Africa and in the post-colonial world. And there, the abstention and the movement beyond was more possible, I would argue, then. No, but what they did in the post-colonial world was reconstruct colonialism. They never got outside of the very parameters of, and of the very uh, structures, really, of colonialism. They never broke the cycle. And, that, and that's why you see that you really have, uh, I, I don't want to call it recolonization, but you have this, what happened to Nkumbra and all of these people once they became, they declared independence, then they began to reenact the very structures that, that, that colonized their very nation. And so they never really, and that's what I mean when I think about the masters, is they never got outside of those structures. And so I don't, that's, that's not, that's, no. <laughs> that's not an example of constructing another way of being. All they did was reenact it, but now who was in power? They are. Right, and so black, so what I say is this, that also, just as white people and white American, white persons have to, those people who look like white Americans, have to, don't need to live into what it means to be a white American, then those people who don't look like white Americans, they have a responsibility of not trying to become and not live into the culture of whiteness. And that's what has happened in quote unquote post, many parts of post-colonial Africa, and we know that. And so, and one of the reasons for that, I think, is because we have not been able to construct a vision of what post-colonial life looks like. We haven't constructed that vision, and so we're always staying within the very cycle and just transforming those, uh, those things that we, th those, uh, those forms of oppression. And so I don't know if that, and, and that, so I, I'd see, and I don't agree, uh, in that regard, in terms of the uh, Afro-pessimist project that suggests that you have this post-colonial project going on in Africa, and, and one wouldn't say that, on the, if the Africans wouldn't say that. You can push back. I can't. <laughs> oh, one more question. So I'm going to close my eyes and let you pick, because a lot of hands went up. Hi, thank you for an amazing talk. Um, obviously, I came in expecting to hear about God and this sort of issue. But you did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering how we can honor this really beautiful black Christian tradition while also acknowledging, like, I'm from New York, right? Mm -hmm. And acknowledge sort of the complexity of the black community in America today. We have all sorts of immigrants who come in, and it's just not everybody is. Christian in the way that you're articulating, and not every black person in my life is necessarily invested in, oh, what does it mean to be Christian right now? So I'm just wondering how can we be inspired by that tradition, but also expand how we're thinking yeah. about blackness. And, that, and that's what I was saying at the end. We, what, we've, what we've got to, I, I speak from a Christian theological perspective, that's my particularity. But uh, what we, tr what we have to embody and embrace is the fullness of who God is, right? And the fullness of who God is is reflected in the richness of 
humanity. Whether we're talking about ethnically, we're talking about culturally, we're talking about gender re gendered realities, uh, sexual expressions of those gendered realities, religions, whatever. The various ways in which people act out or enact or live into what it means to be human in any tradition, any uh, religious tradition that denies uh, the culture, the religion, because religion is part of culture, that of another, the different ways in which people live into and the diverse ways in which people express for themselves what it means to be human, well then to me something's wrong with that religion. Uh, duh, and so I think one of, let me point to someone in the black faith tradition that did that well. And that was some of you, because you know, he was up at Boston College uh, in his day, Howard Thurman. Right, Boston University, what did I say, Boston College, Boston University, and at Howard uh, as well. And uh, Thurman was, I mean, he's one of the great black church heroes, so to speak, saints. Thurman said this, and he was also very interfaith and very interreligious. And Howard Thurman said, when we talk about God and having to get to God, so to speak. He said, we need to think of it as God being in a room with many doors. Now the object is to get into the room, right? And you go through the door that is most appropriate for you and who you are and where you are. Now, he said, nothing makes one door any better than the other door. He said, as long as the door opens up into the room. But if you start worshiping the door, right? oh, look at my door. My door's so great. What happens? You don't open up the daggone door and go into the room. And so as long as your door opens up into the room, then it's a good door. And the room that it opens up into is a room where everybody that has breath is regarded as sacred. The moment any door denies the sacredness of another human being, then the daggone door doesn't open up into the room. And so, that's where I'll leave it.